Last one. Indeed. <laughs> From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Boyish. You listen to I guess I should apologize that this episode is coming out a few weeks late. Normally we air at the beginning of the month, but we've clearly been delayed. And part of that was because of the holiday season had us tied up with family and friends and food and all that good stuff. But it's also because I've been having a hard time finishing this episode. And that's primarily because I found out a little while ago that this will be our final episode with Catherine at the helm. And to be honest, when I found out that it would be our last time on air together, I just kept putting it off. Because if you put it off, it won't have to happen yet. Because once it happens, it's it's really over. Catherine was a dear friend of mine long before we ever ran a culinary journal together. And long before that culinary journal got the opportunity to morph into a radio show. In fact, Dirty Spoon began as a blog where I would publish extended interviews with guests particularly salacious interviews that the paper might have intentionally truncated, hence the name Dirty Spoon. But, little known fact, I'm actually dyslexic, so the blog was barely legible at best. But Catherine came along, out of nowhere, and offered to proofread my posts before they went live. For free, I might add. It was an exceedingly generous offer, and after a year of her work, I asked her if she wanted to help me turn Dirty Spoon into a hand-illustrated journal of culinary stories. She was all in. And within months, we'd completely redesigned the page around a collective idea. 
Catherine became the editor at large, using her connections in the literary scene to source stories from around the world, from up-and-coming writers. In a lot of ways, The Dirty Spoon is her show. She sources the stories, sorts through all the submissions, and tests the best ones, figures out who to publish and who to cut, edits those stories, then submits them to me, and I find the voice actors, music, and record and produce the show. Nearly every episode of our radio hour wouldn't have been possible without her. Like I said, this is, and has always been, in my mind, largely her show. One thing I don't think many people realize is that from the start, we have had the rule that we do not get paid until every contributor to the show gets paid. So every donated dollar goes to broadcast fees or to our writers. We've never been paid a dime for this show. But a few years ago, it came to my attention that when our sponsor dollars fell short, Catherine was paying our writers out of her own pocket just to keep the show going. In addition to that, she handled all of our marketing, web design, and social media, basically 75% of what we do. And that was on top of running her own business and a nonprofit that she helped found to help restaurants during the pandemic. She's been a dear friend a fantastic coworker, and one of the best allies I could possibly ask for. And together, we were able to build a platform for people in the service industry to have a voice on the radio, for them to share their stories, and for many of them to gain the status of published writers, illustrators, or voice actors for the first time. I want to be abundantly clear, The Dirty Spoon isn't ending. We will be back next season with a great show for you, and our mission will still be the same to broadcast the voices of the people who create what we consume. But it won't be the same without Catherine. We're going to have a very different show because no one can do what she does as well as she does it. And with that being said, thank you, Catherine, for over half a decade of hard work. Has it been that long? It's been, I mean, we founded this like six or seven years ago. I feel so old. It's a lot. <laughs> no, my hair's gone gray. My beard has gone gray. We've all gone gray. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember, I have such fond memories of us starting this show. And we always prepare in your kitchen or at your dining room table always over a glass of wine before we start recording or before we start talking about stories that we want to tell. And you would often have something cooking for us. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it always, the show always feels like having a dinner with friends and having a, having a dinner with the people that you love the most. And, um, I'll miss it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember when we, so when, before we even had the radio show, we were just a journal. And so we were just publishing illustrated stories. And the idea was to kind of get away from people taking pictures of their lunch. Yes. And so we decided to do everything hand illustrated. So we brought in our friend Katya to illustrate all this, all the, everything. And she was this fantastic illustrator. And, uh, Katya, we love you, by yes, the way. We, and we, we miss, miss you. Katya. Katya. She's in Germany now. She's the chef of a restaurant in And Germany. she's incredible. Um, but we, uh, the very first thing we published was a story about a festival in Virginia that I had attended. Mm -hmm. And we can't use the name <laughs> because of what happened. But they, uh, 
we published the piece, the first article, and they immediately had their lawyers contact us and sue us because it was this crazy. If you if you go to our webpage and look up um, Hogfest, it's the story, and uh, they immediately sued uh, tried to sue us to to take the story down, try to get me fired from my job. I don't know if they did the same to you, Catherine, but um, it was it was a bit nuts. And uh, I remember Catherine was just like. I think we should leave the story up. <laughs> that's when we that's when we knew that we were onto something good. Yeah. We were onto something real and we were onto those stories that people weren't telling in in radio and in podcasts at that time too in many ways. Yeah. We we changed I think you convinced me to change the name of it. Yeah. And to change the names <laughs> of the characters in the story and just to leave it up. But I was like, all right, this is the right person to be in this with. And that was literally <laughs> our first day publishing. And, uh, and then, you know, later they come to us with the radio show and you were all on board with it too. So I couldn't yeah. be more grateful. It's been an amazing ride ever since. What's next? What are you doing? Well, I am taking a time that I've long denied myself to focus on my own writing and, um, and focus on, my family a little bit more <laughs> in some ways. Uh, you know, our world just spins so fast nowadays and it's hard to carve out that time. And so sometimes you have to make these really heartbreaking decisions between, you know, <laughs> creating and telling other people's stories or deciding to tell your own. Yeah. No, I totally get it. Um, Catherine actually tried to quit a couple of years ago after we finished season two. And I did. I, uh, I, I, I really lobbied for her to stick around. And I'm so glad you fought for me because look at what we've produced since then. It's been great. It's been so good. And I, I think like, no, and this wouldn't, we wouldn't, uh, I, I would have just canceled the show at that point. You know, I don't think we had enough under our feet to, to make it without you at that point. We were and, still uh, a little green and yeah. gosh, we made it good. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm super, super proud of what we've done and proud of you for sticking in there with me. I don't know anyone else that I could have think of that would put in this much effort for free and volunteer this much of their time to make something this off the wall and weird that doesn't really have an audience. <laughs> 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 and uh, I don't know. I couldn't be more grateful. And, and I, I yeah, I'm just glad you stuck around as long as you did. Four years is a long time to run a radio show, and and six or seven years is a long time to run a a, a web journal for free. And uh, thank you for everything you've done. It's been my pleasure, and I I think that this is Dirty Spoon's first course. I'm excited to see what's served as the next course. Well, I, I, and I hope you'll stick around and come back for you know for for guest things. Oh, I will be. You can't get rid of me yet. Okay, good. <laughs> so we'll see you for stories and, and other other things? Oh, definitely. I'm a constant dinner guest. You know that, John. Okay, great. Good. So <laughs> so this isn't the last you're hearing of her voice, so that's good. But, uh, well, the show must go on. So um, let's have another song.
Have you ever tasted a song? Jessica Furness says she has. A food photographer and viral TikToker, Jessica designs intricate drinks around classic songs. King of the Road becomes a smoky whiskey cocktail. Blue Moon blends chai concentrate with oat milk, buttery pea flower tea, and pea flower sweet cream foam for an azure chai latte. With over 100,000 followers on TikTok, Furnace could easily sit back on sponsorships from major brands, but she doesn't. She chooses instead to use her influence to shine a spotlight on small brands run by LGBTQ and BIPOC entrepreneurs and to talk about issues that affect their lives. Ohio journalist Mandy Shinara sat down with Jessica Furnace to talk about what drives her. Here's their conversation. So the way I kind of described you to someone was I talked about how you basically have synesthesia for drinks, you know, and like <laughs> for for folks who may be listening who aren't familiar, synesthesia is where you can like taste a color or smell a feeling. And I was trying to explain that like you hear these songs and then you make these recipes based on them. So... For those of us who do not have this talent, walk us through what's happening in your head when you hear a song and then you decide to make a recipe from it. Sure. So, like, that that is kind of, you know, similar to what, what happens. Um, I will listen to a song. Sometimes I listen to it one time and instantly the drink comes to mind. Sometimes I have to listen to the same song several times for a week. <laughs> And then I'm like, oh, this is the drink. The drink kind of creates itself. Like, the song tells me what its drink is. I know that might sound kind of silly, but um, that's really what happens. For instance, sometimes it's more simple process. So Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra is a classic that most people know. So for that one, um, there's a vintage cocktail called a paper plane. And I was like, well, of course you know, that's the drink that goes with this. And I made a couple of adaptations to the drink. Um, but for the most part, you know, it was a paper plane and that made perfect sense. But then there are more complicated songs um, that <laughs> take a little bit more digging and interpretation um, to kind of figure out, okay, what is this song? What vibe is this song giving me? Like, is this... um a sultry song. When you think about this song, are you imagining being in a 1940s, you know, jazz club, a smoky vibe, and, you know, it's nighttime, and there's elegant dresses all around you, or is it like, which there's a lot of Ella Fitzgerald songs that fit that vibe for me, or is it like (laughs) the sunny side of the street? like um, Doris Day singing The Sunny Side of the Street. Obviously, that's going to be a bright and cheery yellow drink with sunflowers and, (laughs) you know, dandelion syrup and, you know, sparkling water to top it off. So the drinks kind of just tell me, you know, the the songs tell me what the drink is. Does each song also tell you whether it's going to be a cocktail, mocktail, tea, or coffee drink? That... That is something that I've been thinking about because a lot of times I have a coffee idea in my head or a tea idea in my head and a cocktail or mocktail idea in my head. And so I kind of have to decide, 
which direction am I going? So for the folks listening who maybe have not yet seen your TikTok channel, uh, well, first of all, tell us your handle. And then second, kind of walk us through like maybe your favorite recipe that you shared on TikTok. Yeah, so I'm at Jessica underscore Furnace. My favorite cocktail that I've ever made is actually my most popular one, too. And it's a song by Glenn Miller called The Moonlight Cocktail. Um, And it's a drink that is pink and sparkly and has edible flowers on top. Um, And I love it because the song so strongly informs the drink. Um, You know, the lyrics are, um, let's see... um, uh, start with a, a, a jigger of moonlight and then some stars. And it says stir for a couple of hours, um, add flowers. Um, and so I, and lovers hail the moonlight cocktail. So there's a lot of directions that already exist in the song. So I'm like, okay, what would moonlight look like? Probably a deep blue, you know, <laughs> and like some stars. So I add edible glitter you know, and then edible flowers at the end. And so that song just really, um, I felt a strong connection to the song. And then I think other people did too, when they saw the visual representation of the song in the drink. Gotcha. I just remembered another one of your drinks. That's one of my favorites. Uh, it was for the song Uranium Fever and it glowed under a black light. How did you make it glow? Um, about 10 days of utter frustration and anger. And then <laughs> finally, finally pulling in my engineer-minded partner who was able to, um, to inform me, hey, tonic water glows. Oh, it does. Yes, tonic water glows under blacklight. So thanks to Tony. We were able to get that to work. I tried several different things, um, you know, to no avail. But he was able to, um, we practiced, you know, with with the tonic water and different black lights, like an overhead one, a lamp one, and then landed on a flashlight, which worked best. So thanks to him, (laughs) that one worked out. But yeah, that one very much, there is, um, there's a cult following of certain wartime songs from the 1940s um, because of a video game called Fallout. And um, that particular song was very popular on Fallout, uh, the video game. So I ended up having a lot of connection uh, with gamers, which is cool because Tony and I actually play that game too. So um, (laughs) it it was neat to see people feel like one of their favorite songs from a you know a video game they love um was able to be turned into a drink um can you tell us a little bit more about what your experience has been like being a viral drink influencer on this social media platform like how do people respond to you what are some good that's come out of it is there anything bad that's come out of it just the whole experience of being an influencer yeah so it's very, it's very different than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to bring a lot more personal validation than it did. Um, because I've been working towards having 
a larger following to share, you know, the work I do with for so many years, it's like, well, once I get there, I'm going to be so happy. And you do feel that happiness, but then also everything in your life is still the same. So yeah, I, I now have had a, a couple of paid partnerships where I get paid to post. That's different. Um, I have maybe three or four close other influencer friends um, on, on the app that, you know, we text or message each other for encouragement and stuff like that. Um, and if you Google my name, these videos show up, but otherwise my life is exactly the same. And I think I thought that that would be different. Um, and that is good and bad, you know, because when you build up all this hope towards something and then you realize, oh, my life is just the same. There's that initial disappointment, but overall it's like, well, duh, of course it is. <laughs> of course something like this doesn't change your entire life. But what it does do is opens up more opportunities. Um, and as a white person, um, I feel um, very grateful for that, but I also know that that my whiteness has is part of the reason why this was easier for me. Um, and so it's important to me to specifically work with um, black uh, brands, um, indigenous brands, um, you know, um, brands especially that are owned by uh, women of color. Um, and so I think for me, that's a change that has been really positive that I now have a platform to help these small um, businesses that are just starting out. Now I have a platform that I can say, here's all about this brand. And now there's a wider audience that I can say, here's, you know, <laughs> go engage with this. Um, so, you know, just acknowledging that privilege, but then trying to do the best I can with it. Yeah. And do you want to shout out some of those brands right now that you love working sure. with? Yeah. So, um, Nuba, uh, N-U-B-A, is um, a mother and daughter-owned uh, hibiscus tea company that I absolutely love. Um, they created um, a ready-to-drink uh, hibiscus tea. They've got several different flavors and varieties of it um, that was, you know, made um, after the traditional way in Egypt, um, where they're from, of they did it in the traditional way that they drank hibiscus tea, which, um, to my understanding, they drink hibiscus tea kind of like how we drink sweet tea in the South. So they're drinking it daily and, you know, not, not changing it up too much, but they've got some fun varieties. Um, another brand that I worked with recently that was amazing is Native Ground Coffee. And that is, that's, it's a Native American-owned coffee company uh, out of Arizona. And I just really love their product. Their coffee is so delicious. Um, we have done espresso with it, cold brew with it, iced coffee with it, um, uh, drip coffee with it, and native ground coffee. It makes all of those delicious. And for my coffee connoisseurs, you know, a lot of times you have to buy a different coffee for each of those things. 
but that coffee works like no matter how you brew it. And it's so, so delicious. That's wonderful. And speaking of specifically working with uh, BIPOC and uh, women of color owned businesses, you also use the drinks you make on your platform to advocate for social justice. Like I remember when you did your Pride Flag series. Uh, Yeah, so tell us more about that aspect of how you use your platform. Yeah, so um, unfortunately there is a lot of horrible um, things going on in the uh, American government right now, um, especially anti-trans. And so for me, Um, we can't talk about the LGBTQ community. We can't talk about the LGBTQ community enough. There, you just, enough cannot be said. So I decided to turn pride flags into drinks. And what I found was people were so excited to see their particular identity represented. Um, For instance, I did uh, the asexual flag, the ace flag. And um, this asexuality is something that has really just been our entire life. Hush, hush, you know, don't talk about it. It's very rare is what they want you to believe. But it's not. Um, A lot of people are asexual. Um, And so I found when I shared that flag, there were so many people that were like, wow, this is awesome. Like during pride month, I get to see something specifically made for me, you know? And so that was really cool. Um, and it was the same when I shared, uh, the trans flag, uh, people just feel so, they feel so happy to see their colors represented. And it was actually a great learning experience for me. Um, because I learned about a ton of, um, sexual orientations and ident- gender identities that I didn't even know about. Uh, so that was a really cool um, experience for me. And just to know that now on TikTok, there, <laughs> there is, um, you know, these drink videos with probably close to a million views that specifically talk about um, the LGBTQ community and our representation. Uh, that was just a really cool experience to feel like something I'm doing is making people feel seen and making people feel valued. So it was an, it was an awesome experience. So what I thought was really amazing is I had some teenagers and young adults, um, popping into, (coughs) popping into my DMs and saying, this is awesome because I can make this drink at home and my parents don't know that it means something or my guardians don't know that it means something. So this is a way that I can, it's going to make me cry, but it really is. Um, this is a way that I can celebrate. <laughs> I feel so stupid. That's making me cry. Um, but you know that's a way that they can celebrate without having to sacrifice their safety um particularly there was um there were two 
different uh, trans teenagers that reached out and had said that to me. Um, and that was just like, ugh. Um, that was just a really good feeling to know like, Hey, I've given them some type of tool for them to still celebrate who they are and also a safe space, um, you know, on my TikTok account, uh, a, a space where they feel safe to celebrate who they are. On the topic of activism, you also do a lot of anti-diet activism and are a proponent of intuitive eating. So for folks who don't know what that is or what it means, tell us uh, what it is and what it means and also how it relates to your work that you do. Yeah, so um, for a long time, uh, I... Um, was very um, bought into a lot of pseudoscience surrounding nutrition and food. Um, and I believed things like sugar's horrible for you, gluten is bad for you, you have to eat clean, you know, in quotes there, um, because there is no such thing as eating clean. The only eating clean is to make sure you wash your vegetables. Um, so... I, I was very much caught up into that to the point where I started developing orthorexic eating habits. And um, for those of you who don't know what orthorexia is, it's an unhealthy obsession uh, with making sure that everything you eat is healthy, whatever that might mean to you. And that really ran my life. Um, you know, I couldn't just go out to eat with a friend on a whim. I had to look up the menu online first and decide, okay, what is going to be okay for me to eat? Um, most of mine wasn't surrounding body image. It was just surrounding so much fear um, around food making me sick. Luckily, there has been a lot of actual real medical professionals, um, doctors and dietitians who have recently started sharing, you know, a lot of the information we have about nutrition is false. Um, so there, there's a book that I've been reading called Intuitive Eating. Um, and it specifically addresses how actual overall health um, is improved when people eat by just listening to your body and listening to your cravings. And for me, it has brought just a lot of freedom in my life. Um, I still struggle with a lot of those fear thoughts around food in general, um, but it has um, it has helped me find some level of comfort and satisfaction in food like I did when I was a kid. So I try to share it in a way that lets people know I'm not a professional but here's some great resources and here's what I'm learning. Um, and I want to circle back to uh, being an, a food and drink influencer. Um, and so you're really plugged into the food and drink community at large. What are some things that are issues in that community, things that you wish, you know, the community could be doing better or different and what you want 
people who are not as plugged in to understand about that community? I start creating um, pitches for fall uh, in early summer. (laughs) So if September gets here and I share something with pumpkin in it, just let me share it because I've probably been sitting on it since the end of May or June. So (laughs) we, we have, our timeline is very different. So um, there's a lot of hate that comes (laughs) with how dare you share this so early, you know, a lot of that stuff, like even with Christmas, I'm seeing a lot of hate, like how dare you share Christmas things before Thanksgiving, like, like, sir, I created this Christmas (laughs) pitch in September, if I want to share it (laughs) in November, just, just move along. (laughs) Let me share this. Um, I will also say there has been a pretty um, <clears throat> ignorant meme going around um, that really bothers me. Um, and I'm sure most people just see it as a lighthearted joke, which is fine. I mean, in, in a way it is. Um, but it's something like, um, uh, okay, Sarah, just give me the recipe. I don't want to read your entire life story before I get the recipe for this pumpkin bread. Um, Okay. Oh, there's a lot, a lot I have to say about that. And I know you and I have talked about this before, but first of all, someone is giving you a free recipe. Someone has taken the time to photograph, to write, and is sharing this with you completely for free. When our grandmothers were our age, they had to pay for cookbooks or ask a friend or a family member to write a recipe for them. We can just go on Pinterest and all these incredibly talented bakers and cooks are sharing these things with us for free. So maybe we shouldn't have any demands on them. Uh, Second of all, um, you have to write in a certain way and a certain length to show up in Google searches correctly. Um, what is what are the words I'm looking for? It, uh, it, uh, SEO. SEO, thank you. SEO. Um, and so there's a reason behind why we're doing that. And third, almost all current blogs have an option for you to just click go to recipe. So you don't even have to read all of it. But guess what? The reason it showed up to you and the reason you get to see it is because that person put so much effort into making sure that they had the amount of words, the type of words for it to even show up to you in SEO. Another thing I will say is um, in America, we're not doing a great job um, sharing food that is not uh, mainly made and created by white people for white people. Um, and when we do, we're always sharing it with, um, through the white lens. So we might just throw on the word fusion and take a classic recipe from another culture and say, oh, fusion, but really we're just making it more appealing to the white palate. Um, that's very true in the drink world too. 
there's a lot of this idea right now because of the pseudo 2020 white awakening, white awakening. I want to make sure I say that. There's a lot of pass the mic, pass the mic, be a good ally, pass the mic. Like, nah, that that's not that's that's not what needs to happen. Um, what needs to happen is that we just need to. Everybody needs to have a mic already. And you just need to go directly to the source and say, hey, I want you to do this and I want to pay you exactly what I'm paying um, your white coworkers and not, I want to feature you. I would love to feature you. Uh, obviously you're a white person as we've discussed, but uh, that money issue is something that you yourself have experienced. So I wanted, I would love for you to talk about that because I think people look at influencers of any kind and think, oh, it's very glamorous and, you know, it's a very fabulous life. And there's the side that people don't see. So give us some insight into that. I have a lot of respect for small product-based businesses. Um, and I know that when they're first starting out, a small product-based businesses, um, may not have a lot of resources for marketing. Um, however, I'm also a small business. Um, and so, yes, I don't sell products, but I'm a small business still, and I have to get paid as well. So there has to be a balance between, hey, I'm a small business and I can't pay you, and hey, so am I, and I have to get paid. So um, what I've done personally is created a um, small business package where my rates are lower to work particularly with small product-based businesses. Now, when it comes to larger brands, um, I am frequently getting emailed hey, we want to send you this $15 product. Uh, what we expect in return is five full-length videos, uh, 10 IG stories, and a link on your profile directly to our sales page for a month. Um, these big businesses. And my question is, would you ask a marketing firm to do that? No, you wouldn't. Well, that's virtually what I am <laughs> and I'm, I'm marketing your product so no I can't do it for free so I think there's a huge issue with large companies seeing um, influencers as a free way to market like you know well influencers just want free stuff that's not true it's just not true across the board it's not true Everybody deserves to be paid for the work that they do. And it's time for us to stop this patriarchal view of women influencers are just stay-at-home moms who want to have fun and will be grateful for a free $10 product they can post on their blog. Like, that's, we're past that. It's time for that to be done. Um, we're professionals and we need to be paid just like anybody else. Amen to that. Mandy Shinara in conversation with food photographer and viral TikToker Jessica Furness. You can find that interview on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. 
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Couple of jiggers of moonlight and add a star. Four in the blue of a June night and one guitar. Takes in a couple of dreamers and there you are. Lovers favorite quotes is from David Byrne in the movie True Stories. He says, I enjoy forgetting. When I first come to a place, I notice all the little details. I notice the way the sky looks, the color of white paper, the way people walk, doorknobs, everything. Then I get used to the place, and I don't notice those things anymore. So only by forgetting can I see the place again as it really is. Live anywhere long enough, and things become normalized. Drive the same drive to work every day, and you begin to zone out the buildings and businesses you pass all the time. Hear a song enough times, and it becomes background noise. I think the only time this changes is when you leave a place. When we are getting ready to move, all of a sudden, our time in that place flashes before our eyes, and we realize what we've grown accustomed to and are about to lose. 
When Kristen Russo was preparing to leave New York, there was one thing concerning her most before her move. Getting one last bagel from her favorite shop. I take a seat on a stool in the window and can finally breathe. The scene outside is thoroughly animated like the set of a play. Dogs being walked. Couples at tables silently reading the paper. Runners pit-patting the pavement, the morning air against their faces. And regulars strolling through the door ready to place their orders. Lately, I've been wondering if the scene outside the window of my new neighborhood cafe will be as perfectly neighborhood-like. After living in New York my whole life, specifically this corner of Queens for the past 10 years, I will be moving on and trying my hand at international living. Will I find a suitable replacement after I leave? A familiar face of the staff comes over to hand me my breakfast. Beaming, I accept it. Once the plate is set in front of me, the weekend has officially begun. My whole morning is centered around this moment and breakfast is appropriately circular. A New York staple, the bagel, is available in a variety of options. For a long time, I chose strictly sesame. For a brief stint, whole wheat. Lately, everything bagels are the variety of choice and are always topped with egg salad. Bagels are available in other parts of the country, but they're never quite like they are here. I don't know what to expect in Spain, which will be my new home soon. There's a lot of debate about what makes the best bagel, but most New Yorkers will tell you it's the water. I wonder if people will boast about the water in my next neighborhood. When the owner comes by to say hello, I know that polite formalities are only the door to rich conversation. I pause for mouthfuls of bagel and wipe my face because egg salad is, in part, prone to being worn. New York Times features the mayoral election, climate change, happenings around the city. Nothing beats the time we went down the rabbit hole of discussing accounts of alien life. He always segues with the same line, well, I'll let you get back to your bagel. I shift on the stool to turn my attention to the remnants of gluten and spilled egg. Crusty on the outside, carb-laden on the inside. At minimum, made from flour, water, yeast, and salt, there are varied feelings about what constitution makes a bagel the best. Everyone feels they are right, whether they lean toward large and fluffy, soft on the inside but with a crust you can tap, squeezable with a satisfying crack on the outside. The combinations are many. My weekend breakfast bagel tastes hearty but not overwhelming. It leaves me satiated but not stuffed. In my eyes, the perfect bagel. Late morning now and the scene outside my cafe window has evolved. More of the neighborhood is awake and tables are all ornamented with patrons, some with pets happily lounging at their feet. Members of the staff chat with customers they've come to know very well and hustle from behind the counter to fulfill breakfast rituals of varied styles. Just coffee, coffee in a pastry, and the ever-popular New York breakfast, bagels with cream cheese. When I realize I'm nearing the end of my own, I slow down. Sometimes I'll grab a fork and make sure none of the egg salad that has trickled out of the bagel and onto the plate goes to waste. Other neighborhood regulars stop by my stool to talk. 
The line along the display case of croissants and treats grows longer. Once I'm sure I am prepared to wrap it up, or if I begrudgingly must get on with the day, I enjoy the last single bite of bagel. In my new setting, will I be this reluctant for breakfast to end? Will it feel like home? Appreciative, I slide off the stool, gather my things, and turn to the counter to bid farewell to the staff who have become such a welcome part of my routine. They will probably never understand how much they mean to me and to so many people of this Queen's neighborhood. A staff that knows my order and becomes invested in offering choices when I, surprisingly, once in a blue, make a change. A staff that leans over to tell me secrets and that shakes with laughter when we trade jokes. Most of all, a staff that tells me everything is going to be okay in my new home once I am gone. I can hope there will be people like this in my new city, but I finally realize that they, along with my weakened bagel with egg salad, are irreplaceable. That was Jessica Springer reading Kristen Russo's The Last Bagel in New York. You can find that story in all of our backstories on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Stunning 8K resolution meditation app In honor of the revolution, it's half off at the gap Deadpool self-awareness, loving parents, harmless fun The backlash to the backlash to the thing just begun There it is Again That funny feeling That funny feeling There it is Again That funny feeling That funny General's pop-up shop Robert Iger's face Discount at agit prop Bugles take on race Female Colonel Sanders Easy answer, civil war The whole world at your fingertips The ocean at your door Lion King the Pepsi halftime show 20,000 years of this Seven more to go Carpool karaoke Steve Aoki Logan Paul The gift shop at the gun range A mess shooting at the mall 
of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2022. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Boyish, Willow Avalon, Glenn Miller, Fuss, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lindstrom and Linz Thomas. Catherine Campbell is our editor at large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammis is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPBM. Sorry. <laughs> I can totally do it without crying. It's okay. Okay, sorry, I can do that from the top. We're keeping that. <laughs>